Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden. This is episode 54, A King Comes of Age. I'm Chris, one of your hosts, taking you on a chronological journey through Swedish history. And I'm Elsa, your other host on this journey. We're excited to pick up where we left off last time as King Magnus comes of age and takes up his position as proper king of not only Sweden but also Norway without the steadying hand of a regency council. But before we tell you this week's phrase, we really need to give a long overdue thank you to another Magnus, a Magnus of the modern day, who has kept sending us loads of great phrases. So thank you, Magnus. Newly appointed our official Swedish Phrase of the Week contributor. Not to um, disparage Magnus's contributions, but it would have been a bit more fun if it was King Magnus sending in the phrases, wouldn't it? From the past. Yeah, yeah. from the grave. <laughs> this is actually the third week in a row that we've used one of modern-day Magnus's phrases. So, huge thank you to you. And the phrase this time is Gå i gamla julspår. Which literally means to walk or go in old tracks of a wheel, or old wheel tracks. Yeah, and in this case, I think the meaning actually corresponds rather well to the literal phrase, because it means to be stuck in old ways of doing things, or to keep doing things the same way they've always been done. You could say, for example... My boss is very adverse to change. He wants the company to just keep going in old wheel tracks or old tracks of a wheel. I'm imagining that maybe this phrase comes from back when people actually used horses and carts or oxes uh, and carts. And the wheels of carts and wagons would make deep tracks in the dirt road. And then obviously the easiest thing the road that offers least resistance is to keep going in those tracks that have already been made rather than trying to make a new track because the wheels wouldn't spin as easily. But now it's back to the narrative. We ended last episode with the declaration that Magnus, having turned 15, had come of age and could rule the kingdoms of Norway and Sweden by himself in 1331. The Regency Councils would return to simply being the Royal Councils, or the Advisory Councils. If you're thinking that being 15, even back in 1331, isn't really old enough to be able to run a country as king, then you actually share the opinion of a number of Norwegian nobles, including the Drots, or Drottsetta, Erling Vidkonsson, and he had rebelled against Ingeborg eight years previously to basically give himself that job. What's annoying Erling this time is the fact that there's a statute from 1302 which stipulated that a Norwegian king came of age at the age of 20 and not 15. Now, a stickler for the rules if it concerns something to do with him, Erling Vidkonsson leads a number of other Norwegian nobles in a rebellion against the crown. This is presumably for other reasons as well as the fact that Magnus is going to be taking decisions a few years earlier than the law says. Maybe Erling thought his position as Dorts was going to be threatened. 
he was certainly going to lose a lot of power now that Magnus could make decisions without him. And maybe he had reasons to believe Magnus wouldn't trust him or keep him in the council any longer. Full-blown rebellion seems a bit drastic, but unfortunately we don't know of any other reason for this rebellion. There isn't much detail about the rebellion either, so we'll just have to imagine it going on in the background whilst we continue the story. It seems like one of the first things Magnus does in 1331 is to take a huge loan from the Pope at quite unfavorable terms. We know Scandinavia hasn't exactly been rolling in money recently, and Magnus had a big purchase in mind. Yes, because Magnus has spotted an opportunity down south. Danish King Christopher had spent the year scheming, trying to find a way to claw back some control of his kingdom from the German counts who basically ran most of it. He tried to exploit an ongoing conflict between Counts Gerhard and Johan of Holstein by joining forces with the latter, but when push came to shove, this ended in a clear military defeat against Gerhard's forces at a place called Danavirka. The two counts agreed to peace, sidelining the puppet King Christopher during the peace talks as they decided how to split up the kingdom once more. Luckily for Christopher, he was allowed to retain the title of king, but this agreement between the counts only confirmed the fact that he had no real power in the country. The counts soon decide that actually having a king running around claiming to rule the country was too dangerous. He might be able to try and claim back the kingdom piece by piece. And so one day... Christopher was seized by men loyal to the counts and carted off to Ålholm Castle on Lolland, the fourth largest island of Denmark. He wouldn't remain there for long though, as he died the following year, a broken man called the King Without a Country. And this time the counts didn't even bother to crown a new king of Denmark. The show was over, the kingdom of Denmark was officially gone. Yes, it's now an ex-kingdom, a set of scattered counties and duchies in the possession of various German counts was all that remained. You can imagine that some servant in Magnus's <laughs> castle in Sweden would have walked up to the giant map we uh, can assume he had in his office and just rubbed out the word Denmark. Oh, poor Denmark. Yeah, poor Denmark indeed. I mean, we've seen some low points in the various Scandinavian kingdoms over the last 100 years or so, but actually running your country so badly that it ceases to exist is a new low for everyone. This is actually game over. Yeah, I mean, it, it is like kind of top priority of any ruler, just continued existence. That's the bare minimum. Yeah. But someone who isn't too sad about this development is our King Magnus. He, of course, finds a way to take advantage of his neighbor's distress. After all, if there is an age where you tend to be quite cynical and not aware of the struggles of others, it's right in the middle of your teenage years, uh, which is the case for our young king. This next part has a name that I think sounds like it should be a 1980s spy novel. 
The Skåne Affair. The Skåne Affair, starring Magnus Eriksson as the king, meeting people in darkened alleyways and plotting the removal of another country. Out now. <laughs> starring Tom Selleck. <laughs> and his mustache. Uh, so, yes, the Skåne Affair. Since the dissolution and dismemberment of Denmark, the counties of Skåne and Blekinge have been ruled by Count Johan of Holstein, but instead of ruling it all directly, he has given different smaller areas to noblemen from Holstein. We've seen this with people like Knut Porse, that these Germans... They like giving out land as reward to those who serve them well. Having come into possession of some of the richest areas of ex-Denmark, these Holstein noblemen start licking their lips, imagining the riches they can milk out of the peasants living there. The first thing they start to do is issuing huge tax demands and punishing anyone who doesn't pay. In 1332, the Skåningar and Blekingar, the people there, they snap and grab their torches and pitchforks to rebel. They kill anyone who is vaguely German-looking or sounding. Apparently about 300 Germans, innocent or not in the whole tax ordeal, we don't know, have tried to avoid the fighting by uh, entering the cathedral in Lund and asking for refuge. Mobs aren't really known for their compassion or respect for societal and religious norms, though, and all those who are hiding in the cathedral are found and murdered. Uh, There's a bit of a question mark surrounding this whole incident, but it's an interesting story nonetheless. Despite their initial successes, however, the peasants of Skåne and Blekinge realise that they can't hope to win in an all-out war against the Germans. They can rise up, burn a few towns and kill some people, but it's only a matter of time until the Germans return with some well-armed mercenaries and butcher everyone involved and tax the survivors. Since there's nobody representing Denmark around anymore, the only option they see on the table is to ask King Magnus if he would like to come down and be the king of Skorna and Blekinge too. Well, interesting. So, on the 17th of June, 1332, Magnus meets with representatives from Skåne in the city of Kalmar, where they agree that the people of Skåne will submit to Magnus and recognize him as, quote, their rightful and only king. Magnus, in turn, promises to restore law and order to the county and ensure that people keep whatever privileges they had under Danish law. It seems likely that Magnus had some military backup with him uh, in case the Germans try to resist. I think all the peasants are just happy that they're going to get law and order back on their televisions again. (laughs) (laughs) Got to restore law and order to the county. I would be. But 
despite the fact that their television entertainment is going to improve, it isn't clear if Magnus was going to need these troops. A chronicler called Detmar from Lübeck wrote that Magnus sent troops to Öresund to prevent the Holsteiners from fleeing, and that some of their troops were captured and taken to Draga on the island of Armager, which is uh, today apparently a part of Copenhagen, mm -hmm. where they were all killed. Lots of killing this time. Um, however, historians uh, such as Ulf Sundberg have called Deadmar an unreliable source, so we're not entirely sure if this episode actually happened. This whole affair, the Skorner affair, is finally settled peacefully in Helsingborg on the 4th of November 1332, and that's where a peace treaty is signed between the people of Skorner, the German counts, and Magnus. In the treaty, it says that Magnus and his eventual heirs will receive Blekinger, Lister, Skorner, and Vem. You might think that he would be able to get them for free, since he's got loads of troops behind him, but Sweden is actually still quite weak after decades of war, and the Holsteiners like money, so Magnus has to pay. The sum is a huge 34,000 silver marks in Colonian weight. You can imagine most or all of the loan from the Pope that Magnus received was used to help pay at least some of this huge sum. Yeah, this is a lot of money. For completion's sake, the hundreds, which is a unit for an area, the hundreds of Bjerre and Norra Åsbo on the border of Skåne and Halland are actually given to Knut Porse and Ingeborg's children for them to have when they come of age. For now, of course, Ingeborg will rule them as her own, which I'm sure delighted the Swedish nobles, considering their uh, not-great relationship. To sign everything off and make it official, the Archbishop of Lund led a delegation from Skåne to Magnus's formal coming-of-age ceremony, which took place in the summer of 1333. There, the delegation swears loyalty to Magnus as their king. So, hooray! My home of Skåne is officially Swedish for the first time ever in history! Cue fireworks. Yay! I get to be Swedish. That is very good, you are now Swedish. But what's interesting is that Magnus is actually officially declared king of Skorna, as opposed to Skorna just being sucked up and shoved into the box that it's called Sweden. So Magnus is actually now king of three realms, and from now on he will be called, and will call himself, king of Sweden, Norway, and Skorna. And so that's a bit of a promotion for the young man, getting your third kingdom. Mm. And it just adds to the huge amount of land he has as king of Sweden and Norway. But it's also a bit complicated as Norway doesn't really have any relationship to Skorna in this setup. As Harold Gustafsson, professor of history at Lund University, puts it, the state or state system of Magnus Eriksson had a complex structure. Skåne was in a union with Sweden, Sweden with Norway, but Norway and Skåne did not have any direct union relation. Under the Norwegian crown, there were also other political entities in different relations to the crown, the hereditary earldom of Orkney and the Norwegian so-called tax lands, Iceland, Greenland and the Faroe Islands. Basically, Magnus's CV must have been quite long at this point, shall we say. 
Yeah, it is quite a long CV, but after the purchase of Scorner, his lists of debts has also <laughs> grown very long too. So much so that the various debt collectors are now rubbing their hands waiting to cash in on the debt. However, worrying about how he can keep their grubby hands off the kingdom, Magnus decides to try and put off the inevitable repossession actions and tries to find a new way to get some money. This time, in 1333, he borrows from the tithes of the church. Basically, all the money the church had collected that year in Sweden to pay for new buildings, fancy new robes for the priests, or just send money back to the Pope, Magnus waltzed in and claimed that all for the crown. You can imagine that the church as a whole isn't going to be too happy with that, especially the churches that have big building projects going on like abbeys and churches and all of that stuff. Nah, and the Pope isn't too happy either, because he's not getting the money that he's expecting from the Swedish church, and he's loaned Magnus a huge amount of money already. So the Pope, he probably puts a big black mark next to Magnus's name. But better news for Magnus is that those pesky Norwegian rebels claiming he couldn't be king yet, well, they've given up. They recognize Magnus as king and give up the fight, so that's very nice for him. Unfortunately, we don't know any more about this rebellion, so we just have to guess uh, what the outcome was. At the same time, in 1333, Magnus gets a new dot in Sweden. Knud Jonsson's time in office is up, and this time it is Gregos Magnusson who gets the role. We mentioned Gregos very briefly in the last episode. He appeared as one of the council members back in 1322 when the council decided to strip Ingeborg from all political power. He's actually a knight, and historians believe that he was actually knighted at the wedding between Knut Porsa and Ingeboy in 1327. So that's pretty cool, especially considering the dealings they had afterwards. Yes, and this Kregos has experience in administration. He was a lawman in both Vesmanland and Dalarna, positions he took up in 1321 after his father died and passed them on to him. It seems like Magnus was looking to this experience, and you can imagine that he gave him one main task. Find me some money! Oh, and by the way, I'm going on a long trip next year, so you can look after the country for a bit too. A uh, bit of a tough introduction, but bye! <laughs> <laughs> and so in June 1334, Magnus sets off on this trip, and he's actually heading to Namur in Flanders in modern-day Belgium. That's quite a long trip for a king of Sweden. He is heading there to get engaged, which is nice. He is meeting and staying with Blanche of Namur, the eldest daughter of John I, Count of Namur, himself a member of a family known for rebelling against the King of France. Now for some crazy family history. Blanche's father John died in 1330, leaving Blanche's brother, also called John, as Count. This John will soon die, childless, in 1335, handing over the territory to a second brother, who also dies a year later, childless as well. 
John's third son becomes the count, but only lasts a year. And so in 1337, the fourth brother, William, becomes count. During this time, another brother who joined the church also died. Luckily, the final count, William, is here to stay for a while. So we skipped two or three years ahead um, in the narrative there just to tell you what's going to happen to Blanche's family, but we felt like it was easier to tell you all in one go. Yeah, and poor Blanche losing so many of her brothers. Exactly. Blanche has all of this going on in the background where we talk about her engagement to the King of Sweden and her early years in Sweden. Four brothers dying in the space of four years is quite dramatic and pretty terrible. We don't really know why the King of Sweden is marrying the daughter of a Flemish count, but they seem to be a nice couple, and Blanche is mentioned as being very beautiful. Classic medieval uh, description Mm. there. Magnus actually stays with uh, Blanche, or is travelling to and from Blanche, for almost half a year, returning to Sweden in the autumn of 1334. He'd agreed for Blanche to follow him to Sweden in 1335, ready for their wedding. In Swedish literature, Blanche is often known as Blanka, Blanka of Namur, uh, just so you know if you want to look her up and do more reading on your own. Whilst Magnus was away, Jägos and the council get to it straight away. In 1334, we see an attempt to bring in more money to Magnus and the Ram. A law is made for Finland targeting nobles and the farms that they owned. It basically said the outrageous thing that farms owned by the nobility in Finland actually did still need to pay tax to the crown. I mean, one of the major benefits about being nobility was that you didn't pay tax. So this would have been a pretty big deal, but in the long run is still pretty small fry in terms of cash for Magnus. The nobles don't seem to have been too annoyed by it, though, luckily. 1335 rolls around and is a very busy year. Uh, Of course, some of the events revolve around money. A lengthy dispute finally comes to a conclusion in Finland, and by lengthy, we mean lengthy. Since the 1320s, a group of villages in Karelia, Savonia and Tavastia in Finland have been arguing with their bishop, Bishop Bengt, over the correct amount of tax they're due to pay. As we mentioned in episode 52, they were supposed to pay their church tithes to the clergy, and these taxes were meant to be paid in Martin skins. In fact, each peasant was due to pay four Martin skins to the church, but the villagers and farmers in these areas were disputing that amount. The argument had been going on for so many years that the Archbishop of Uppsala had actually gotten involved a number of times, threatening the people that they had to pay. No matter how much they asked... The people still did not pay. The situation got so bad that one parish was even excommunicated when they refused to pay anything. The other villages and farmers were at least paying something. Uh, They said they were happy to pay three skins, but not the four that the church was demanding. In 1335, so conflict that's been going on for up to 15 years... In 1335, Magnus writes a letter to these people 
urging them to pay their taxes as they were supposed to do. The royal pressure was probably enough, as in the same year, the Archbishop of Uppsala finally solved the problem. He decreed that the peasants still had to pay, but they could pay it in money. This was quite unusual, but actually it was a bit of a compromise from the archbishop. That is because the value of Martin skins had fluctuated over the decade-long conflict, and the final price ended up being equivalent to what the peasants wanted to pay to begin with, uh, around the price of three skins. Yeah, that's really the long game by the peasants, just <laughs> waiting for the, your currency to change so much that you're actually only paying the original value that you wanted to begin you with. You can imagine the Finnish peasants like trying to analyse what the price of Martin skins will be down the line. They're constantly on foreign currency exchange websites and thinking, oh, look, the the Martin skin is up against the mark this week. Should we uh, agree now or not? Well, it Martin Martin skins were incredibly popular in uh, this period of medieval Europe. So, you know, it's something that's very much gone out of fashion, but it was a big deal. And whilst this is quite an amusing story, it's actually quite an important indication of the way tax was handled in medieval Sweden. We might have this image in our heads of the king sending round some soldiers with swords to kick down doors and take whatever they wanted and then call it tax. But the fact that this dispute went on for so long and involved a lot of negotiation shows you that it was much more of a two-way process. In a great chapter called Against Tithe and Taxes for King and Province, in the book Northern Revolts, Medieval and Early Modern Peasant Unrest in the Nordic Countries, very great titles by the way, Kimmo Katayaya says the following. In medieval Sweden, the taxes and tithes were not simply dictated from above, but negotiated with the subjects. When disagreements arose, the peasants could complain to the king, organise a tax strike, or where they felt a strong sense of injustice, finally rise up in arms. This is a really interesting thought, and shows that Magnus, the archbishop, and Drotsgegos had to be much more of negotiators than strongmen with some heavies ready to beat up people and steal some coins. Yeah, I found this really interesting when reading about it. And not content with just dealing with some tax issues, Magnus also gets involved in domestic law and makes quite a few significant changes. The first one is really major. He actually outlaws slavery. This is quite a significant development, even though slavery has become less and less common over the decades in Sweden, and it's definitely on a downward trend, but Magnus puts the final stamp on it. Yes, and it's a big and important step forward, taken quite early on in 1335. This was when Magnus outlawed thraldom, as slavery was known, for thralls born by Christian parents in the counties of Westerjötland and Verend. These were actually the last parts of Sweden where slavery had remained legal, as other areas had banned it already in various local laws. It was with the Skara Stadga, which was created in Västergötland and made into law later in the year during the king's Eriksgata, that formally ended slavery and thraldom in Västergötland and meant it was over in all of Sweden. 
whilst this puts an end to medieval Swedish slavery, it was only applicable inside Sweden. And that's a key point that left a bit of a loophole for using slavery abroad. Something that would be taken advantage of a lot later in the 17th and 18th century when the Swedish international slave trade took off. Yes, Sweden had a slave trade. Spoilers, uh, but much more on that later on in the chronology, in a hundred episodes time or so. (laughs) But in the 1330s, the abolition of slavery was a consequence of the strengthening of the Swedish state, which made employing people easier and meant that there was a structure there to enforce contracts and made sure that people stuck to what they had said they would do. If farmer A had promised labourer B that he would pay him X to do work Y, and one of them didn't stick to that, there was now a system of courts, a king, and civil servants, so to speak, to help them sort it out. All this meant that there was a reduced need for enslaving people. Plus, a labourer you can hire and fire effectively whenever you want, but a thrall you have to keep forever and feed them, even when there's no work. We know from wills that thralls were sometimes freed when their owners died too. Sometimes, when thralls were freed, they were given some animals and grains to help them get started as subsistence farmers and labourers. For example, lawman Folke Karlsson in Småland freed his thrall Brynulf in 1282. Brynulf was given two ox, four cows and an unspecified amount of grain to get going on his own. That's a pretty cool story. Some historians have also argued that over time, thralls became more self-aware and aware that there was more land that they could clear and strike out on their own if they wished to. They became aware of their own value and ability, so to say. Go, thralls, go, I guess. And uh, another small legal change, but one that's quite amusing, is that riding around the country fully armed is outlawed in the same year. Dramatic, but probably better safe than sorry. We don't want knights running around in armour and waving their swords around. I mean, as a resident of Sweden, I am very grateful that this law came into place and is still in place. <laughs> yes, it is very much still in place. But now, if we go back to Gregor's Magnuson, the drops, it's at this point that the king probably calls in Gregor's and asks him for more money. There are two big events coming up later in the year that need some funding. The king's Eriksgata, which we just briefly mentioned regarding the law, and the king's wedding. Gregos probably groaned and said no, he didn't have any more money to spare. So Gregos is replaced as Drots by a man called Nils Abjonsson, Sparre of Tofta. This addition to his last name is an early example of the trend that nobility created new surnames for themselves, in his case, Sparre. And the Av Tofta probably means that Tofta is his main estate, i.e. he's from or of Tofta. It's like the Von in German. Exactly. The only condition Magnus has for his new Drotz, apart from give me all the money now, is that his sister Euphemia is to be appointed his advisor. 
We've seen the council be skeptical towards women before, especially women like Ingeboy. Yeah, to put it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> so we can imagine that this was at least a little bit controversial, but we have no evidence to say that anyone protested. Once again, Magnus has been shown to be quick to act when people say he can't do something. So Nils certainly knew where he stood. He also now has to plan the king's wedding and the Eriksgata. So he's more of a party planner than a drots. That's one of his things he needs to do. Unfortunately, we don't have much information about the Eriksgata apart from the fact that the Skarastadga is made law during it. Remember, the Eriksgata is when the king rides around the country and is formally elected in the different counties. But we can imagine that uh, this Eriksgata would have been a big spectacle and a fun thing for people to see, especially nowadays when people aren't expecting the king to be assassinated during the Eriksgata, like what happened way back uh, when Rangvald Knapphövde was killed in the 1100s. No, there was no drama this time around on the Eriksgata, and luckily enough for Niels, the wedding also seems to be a pretty straightforward affair too. The wedding took place in October or early November 1335, with some sources suggesting it took place at Bohus Castle in the west of Sweden, near the border with Norway. As a wedding gift, Blanche received the province of Tunsberg in Norway and Lerdesa in Sweden as her own fiefs. So those were nice but expensive gifts to give out. Yeah, that's very nice indeed. Now we have a Queen of Sweden. She is going to need some attendants and some servants. Queen Blanche has her eye on a married lady called Bigitta, or Bridget, as she's sometimes known in English, but we'll call her Bigitta. Bigitta had become known, at least in noble circles in Sweden, for her works of charity, particular towards uh, Östergötland's unwed mothers and their children. She was in her early 30s when the new queen summoned her to the royal court, where she was asked to be the principal lady-in-waiting to the new queen of Sweden. This is one of the first times we have seen people being mentioned as ladies-in-waiting in Sweden. So that's quite interesting. Minor spoiler, this Birgitta will become very famous later on in the timeline. So remember her name. But for now, Drots Nils probably started ripping his hair out after the wedding when Magnus told him of his plans for 1336. A grand coronation was to take place, but not until his sister Euphemia has had her own wedding. So that's more money to be spent. Indeed, and this wedding is actually a bit of a surprise. If we remember all the way back to 1321, Euphemia was engaged at a very young age to Albert of Mecklenburg by their respective parents Ingeborg and Henry, Lord of Mecklenburg, as part of Ingeborg's plans to invade Skorna except that Henry then switched sides in the battle and turned against Ingeborg. Well, this is actually the same Albert that Euphemia is getting married to, except for he is now Lord of Mecklenburg, Albert II. 
What? That's a bit odd. So the marriage wasn't called off after Henry's major betrayal. Well, we're not sure. Maybe it was, but Henry died in 1329, allowing Albert to ascend to the title of Lord of Mecklenburg. We know Albert was keen to grow a power base in Scandinavia, so maybe the families decided to go along with the wedding after all and ignore the betrayal that happened a decade before. Marrying the sister of a king can't be that bad for your ambitions after all on uh, Albert's side, and from Sweden's point of view, Manus gets better relations to these Germans down south of uh, ex-Denmark. True. Luckily for Dwarts Niels, he didn't have to plan this wedding. Maybe he still had to pay a bit for it. But the wedding is taking place down in Rostock. And so on April the 10th, 1336, Euphemia was married to Albot, becoming Duchess of Mecklenburg in the process. The happy couple returned to Stockholm later in the year to be present at the grand coronation of Magnus as King of Sweden, Norway and Skåne. What a 12 months or so of just non-stop parties. Yeah, and non-stop money, money, money <laughs> that uh, Niels is having to spray around the country. You get money, you get money. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's not going to be fun being the accountant. But people can forget about this for a moment because it was on 21st of July 1336 when Magnus was crowned in Stockholm. Ingeborg, his mother, was at the centre of things, welcoming her daughter Euphemia and her son-in-law Albert as they arrived by boat for the coronation. Uh, this is one of the things that she's always mentioned in the sources is doing, is greeting this great fleet. And uh, she helped with some boats of her own, apparently. You would think that this would be a happy occasion, and for most people it was. However, it did cause a bit of bother over in Norway, as always. Remember, they are separate kingdoms, and just happen to share a king. Over in Norway, the nobles, important people, and some of the general public wanted a separate Norwegian coronation. After all, they crowned all the previous kings of Norway in Norway, so why should this be different this time? They don't think this makes sense. The nobles of Norway aren't quite annoyed enough to start rebelling, but this is another example of how they think that Sweden is being favoured by their king. What had been annoying everyone, though, in both Norway and Sweden, was the financial situation of the country. We've seen how Magnus has had to take out loans and had been pressuring his various dots to sort out the treasury, well, in the same year as the coronation, Magnus takes quite a drastic step to try and cool down the resentment rising in his realm at his tax policies. In a political move that sounds like it belongs in the 20th century, the king writes an open letter trying to justify his fiscal policies in it, he states that his regents had left him an empty treasury, even though they had tried to fix the situation with some extraordinary taxes. In order to try and pay the debts his regents had built up, Magnus had been forced to pledge crown income from large parts of the realm and raise more taxes. Yeah, or well, so he says. This is a very 20th, 21st century political move. 
the previous administration left me with such a mess and unfortunately it comes down to me to deal with the situation and that journey is going to be painful for everyone. I'm not doing it for fun. Uh, we've heard that many, many times in various countries over the last five, six decades. Exactly. The austerity talks. I mean, it also hasn't helped that he has bought Skewanna for a huge amount of money, gotten married and had a coronation in the space of a few years since taking control of the kingdom. He's probably not just eating chicken and lettuce either. No, I'm sure he isn't. And a lot of this uh, debt has come from his decisions and actions, not just his regents before him. Perhaps in response to this public pressure, or just simply because the task was too tough, Drotz nails resigns, possibly bald, having ripped all his hair out, the next year in 1337. This is quite interesting because it is actually says he resigned, so it's not the king sacking him, he's just said, oh no, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I mean, Magnus does seem like quite a tough boss, and he was probably never going to be able to raise enough money to pay off these mounting debts, so I don't blame Niels. No, neither do I. And in another 20th century political plotline, Gregor's Magnusson is asked to return as drops, which he does after Nils resigns. 1337 is the year of the political comeback. But unfortunately for pretty much everyone, another thing returns in 1337, and that is conflict with Novgorod. The background for this is as follows. There was a Lithuanian prince called Gleb Naramont, which is a ridiculous name. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but Gleb Naramont sounds like a character in a Pixar movie. I was going to say it sounds like a whiskey. Yeah, I, <laughs> that too. Can I have a, a thumb of Gleb? But also Gleb is like Nemo's friend in the is new it? installment. No, but it sounds oh. like it. Yeah. <laughs> like the next Pixar movie, Finding Gleb. <laughs> Finding Gleb. <laughs> oh dear. And someone who had found Gleb was the people of Novgorod when they chose him to be their prince in 1333, as he was a great military leader and they thought that he would be able to help them defend their territories. And in 1337, the Swedes helped instigate a violent uprising among the local Karelians living in Novgorod's territories. The Novgorod Chronicle says... Having brought in the Swedes, they killed many Russians of Novgorod and Lodoga who were trading among them and all the Orthodox Christians who lived there. The rebelling Karelians then escaped into Swedish territory at Viboy, but just for the sake of it, started killing some of the few Orthodox Christians who remained living in Swedish territory too. Understandably, the Novgorodians aren't too happy with this, they ask for Prince Gleb to come to their aid. He was still living in Lithuania at the time, sort of working from home, I suppose. But he took too long to do anything. In fact, he took so long to do anything that a Swedish commander called Stein just marched into Novgorodian land and took advantage of the chaos by capturing Nerteboy Castle. The Novgorodians' mighty new castle had been taken. Fed up waiting for Gleb, their Lithuanian prince, in the spring of 1338, the Novgorodians, led by Posadnik, or mayor, Fedor, march out north to take on the Swedes. 
As they arrive at Nöteboy, Fedor and Sten have a bit of a chat. Preliminary negotiations, so to speak. These talks were inconclusive, but the Novgorodians decide to leave instead of assaulting the castle. After all, they know how good a castle it is, so mm. they probably wanted to wait and... Uh, well, maybe... I was going to say wait for Gleb, but <laughs> probably not. Just wait until they had more men, probably. And the Swedes, not waiting for any more peace talks to start, started attacking around Lake Ladoga and Lake Onega. They even burned the suburbs in the town of Ladoga around the fortress there, but didn't try to take the fortress itself, a bit like the Novgorodians not trying to take Nertiboy. The Swedes continued their raiding on the southern shores of Lake Ladoga and into Novgorodian Karelia before the Novgorodians retaliated by burning crops and killing cattle in Swedish Karelia. Ah, you take that cow. <laughs> that's, that's a mighty military response there. Um, there's definitely no peace on the horizon at this point. Later in that year, we're still in 1338, there's also a Swedish raid when Swedish troops march out of V-Boy Castle to attack Toldoga in Ingmarland. But this raid is defeated and the soldiers are driven away by some Novgorodian forces. This two-way campaign of raiding, fighting, pillaging and burning drags on into the winter of 1338. This is when formal Swedish diplomats finally arrive on the scene ready to talk, and they manage to reach an agreement with Novgorod to stop the hostilities. In what seems like quite a bold lie, if it was in fact a lie, it might of course be true, these diplomats claimed that this all started because Stan acted without permission from the Swedish king and Magnus would never have ordered such a violation of the treaty from 1323. Their new treaty now was based upon the previous treaty in 1323, but this time included a specific clause about the Christians in Karelia. The Swedish diplomats could only propose this clause as it, it was quite controversial and they said they needed to negotiate directly with the King of Sweden. These extra talks would take place with Magnus in the following year, 1339. As their part of the negotiating team, the Novgorodians sent the nephew of their archbishop, Vasily Kalika, as his personal representative. Such was the importance of this clause surrounding the Christians in the area. Yes, everybody's taking this uh, Christian part of the treaty very seriously. And the Chronicle says that the final version of the treaty agreed here included a provision about Christians in the region, which said that if ours escape to you, slay them or hang them. If yours to us, we will do the same to them so that they make no treachery between us. But these we will not deliver, those who are being baptised into our faith. There are but few of them, the rest of all died by the wrath of God. So basically they're agreeing that if Catholics from Sweden sneak over into Novgorod, or Orthodox Christians go from Novgorod to Sweden and are caught, they're to be killed. The exception to this rule is in place for Orthodox Christians who leave Sweden for Novgorod, because so many of them have been killed and there's only a few left, and they feel more at home in Novgorod anyway, if they're found moving over the border into Novgorod, they're allowed to stay there and won't be killed, and basically looked after and allowed to become Novgorodian. 
academics such as Michael Paul see this as showing us how the Novgorodian Archbishop Vasily saw his role in the Treaty of 1339, one as a defender of the Orthodox Christians from Karelia who fled from Swedish-held Catholic territory to Novgorod. He managed to get in this clause via his nephew that said that the Novgorodians wouldn't kill any Orthodox Christians because these were the people he was looking after as an archbishop. So yes, this is now escalating into a conflict with some very strong religious overtones. But at least it's over for now, and the peace treaty of 1323 is reinstated, albeit with some small changes. Magnus is probably glad that this conflict didn't manage to spiral completely out of control because whilst this was happening, the Norwegian nobles revolted once again in 1338. Unfortunately, that's all we know, but it seems to be put down quite quickly. Still, it goes to show that the Norwegian nobles were not happy in general. Yeah, they've always got something to moan about, it seems. And despite this, the next few years take along quite nicely. And it seems like Magnus has had at least a few moments to focus on family, as the royal couple quickly welcomed two children to the family. In 1339, Prince Eric is born, given his grandfather's name. The next year, Blanche gives birth to Hawkon, named after the new son's great-grandfather, Ingeborg's father, King Hawkon of Norway. Two very royal names, Erik and Håkon. Yes, this is cause for celebration, but it's uh, we just have enough time to end this episode with a big update from Denmark. Big news in from the neighbours. Since Christopher II died in prison in 1332, as we've seen, Denmark has been this ex-country with Count Gerhard of Holstein in control of the most important remnants of the ex-country. Until recently, he's been backed by the other German counts, nobles and cities, but like everyone else at the time, he also has massive debts. His efforts to recoup this money has led to ongoing peasant rebellions as he's taxing all of these Danes, and slowly but surely, lands that used to be Denmark are slowly turning against the counts. His fellow Germans are also not putting up with his shenanigans either. By the end of the 1330s, his German allies are therefore turning against him, and in 1340, some Danish nobles finally decide to act. And act they do, in a scene worthy of a James Bond film, or some other sort of action-adventure blockbuster. On the 1st of April, 1340, a man from Jutland called Niels Ebbesen and 47 of his warriors made their way to Randers, where Count Gerhard was staying. They found a place to remain out of sight and hid until nightfall. It was then that they snuck into Gerhard's headquarters and somehow made their way all the way into his bedroom. Not standing on ceremony, they cut off the Count's head. Gerhard's rule over ex-Denmark was no more. Sounds like Gerhard didn't have enough money to pay any guards if they can sneak their way all the way into his bedroom. 48 people! <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Also, that's a lot of people to cut off one man's head. Yeah, I don't think 48 people could fit in our bedroom. <laughs> Gives me cause for a new joke. 
how many Danish warriors does it take to cut off one German nobleman's head? How many? 48. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> now, whilst these 48 men didn't want to be seen getting in, they did actually want everyone to know what had happened. And somehow, one of Niels's men had either brought a drum with them. Uh, I don't remember James Bond running around with musical instruments. All right, so you cut off his head, you have the drum, the rest of you, but just go with the flow. Yeah. So, yeah, this one of Niels's men has brought a drum with him, or had managed to steal one from somewhere in the headquarters, and he starts banging it really loud to wake everyone up. The rest of the men went around shouting that, The Count is dead! We're taking back Denmark! And unsurprisingly, the other guards, or the only guards that uh, Gerhardt had managed to employ, start waking up or stop playing cards or doing whatever else they were doing instead of guarding their boss and start to chase the Danes away. Niels and his men run towards a nearby bridge over the river Gurdan, and this is where the final part of their plan was ready. One of the 48 men, so actually maybe there's only 47 men inside uh. the bedroom, because one man had stayed behind at the bridge and had been busy weakening it somehow. Maybe it was uh, held up by ropes or something. And as soon as Niels and his followers had crossed the bridge to safety, they pulled the bridge down and made their escape as the German guards stood on the other side, shaking their fists and probably swearing at the Danes as they ran off into the night. The story goes that just one Dane was uh, lost in the sneak attack, and by lost, maybe he literally got lost and just turned up at the wrong place or something. I feel like this needs to be made into a film. Not surprisingly, especially due to what happens next... Niels is remembered to this day as one of Denmark's greatest medieval heroes. He even has a statue in the town of Randos where this action took place. Unfortunately for Niels, just killing Gerhard wasn't enough to kick the Germans out of the country and retake Denmark for the Danes. A full-blown rebellion starts to try and get the whole country back and kick out the Holsteiners. Step one is to create a figurehead. Nils and his men turn to a 20-year-old man called Valdemar, the youngest son of the previous King Christopher II. His eldest brother is long dead, and his other older brother has been in Holstein prison for the past six years, so Valdemar is the only real option if they want someone of Danish noble blood. Valdemar has spent his upbringing in exile at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Louis IV in Bavaria, so this wasn't just any random bloke they've grabbed off the street. He knows what it is to be a royal noble. He was proclaimed King of Denmark by Niels and his men on the 24th of June 1340, despite the rebels only holding one-fourth of Jutland, let alone the rest of Denmark. And so this is nothing, really, when you look at the map of what used to be Denmark just 20 years previously. Valdemar and Niels realise they can't just stand still. They need to act fast. They lay siege to the Holsteiners at Skanderborg Castle later that year, but unfortunately, Niels is killed in this siege. Realising that he won't be able to take all of Denmark back by force, Valdemar then sets out on a long-term plan. He needs to repay the debts that his father had racked up, 
pay back some of the mortgages and reclaim the lands of Denmark and then take the rest by force. So that is the plan for Scandinavia at the end of 1340. Denmark has a new king, but that king doesn't really have any land to speak of. We should probably end there before we go any further, but we will pick up this fascinating story next time and see what the rest of the 1340s has to offer us. Yeah, it's going to be very fun. And there's just time to say thank you to Sandra and Laszlo for some great emails and some more fun interaction on Facebook and Twitter in the first few months of 2022. Laszlo let us know about a great musician in Sweden who plays Star Wars music on church organs, uh, referencing our bit of joke and chat in episode 51 about church music. So if you want to see that, as I'm sure you do, just search up Ulla Olsson on YouTube and maybe type in Star Wars Church or something like that, and uh, you'll get a fun video. Yeah, it's great fun. Speaking of great fun, we have been guests on two podcasts recently. Yes, uh, two weeks ago, I think, by the time this comes out. So we were guests on the podcast A Life in the Land of Ice and Snow, where we spoke to a few other expats living in Sweden about life in Sweden and what we think about living in uh, Stockholm and all this kind of stuff. So it's a nice, chilled, relaxed chat. Not too much history, mainly about us uh, living here and what we think about living in Sweden. It was really, really good fun. Yeah, I did get to talk about my uh, favourite character in Swedish history, though. So uh, we did talk a little bit about history. It was a general conversation. Yeah, so if you want to hear us talk about random things to do with Sweden, search for Life in the Land of Ice and Snow, one of the most recent one or two episodes. Uh, You'll find it quite easily, I think. And then we joined forces with one of our favourite podcasts ever, Rex Factor. Yes. Um, unfortunately, this is much more difficult for people to listen to because you have to be a member of their Patreon program. But we helped host uh, one of their pub quizzes that they do. So if you're a Patreon member of uh, Rex Factor, part of the Privy Council, you would have heard us ask some questions, trivia questions on Swedish history. So that's great. Maybe we can uh, do them on our podcast at the end of an episode, see how many people get right or something. Maybe next time. Yeah, and if you aren't a Patreon member of Rex Factor, a member of the Privy Council, as they call it, you should be because it's an excellent podcast and you get cool bonus content like the pub quizzes uh, that we were on. So thank you to Ali and Graham for having us on. Yes, and um, even if you don't want to be on the Patreon program for Rex Factor, just their regular episodes are really, really great. So listen to Rex Factor. But... I think that's probably enough for this episode. It's been quite a long one. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, Dor.